0: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Not Your African Cliche. Before we get into today's episode though, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher where we are Not Your African Cliche, as well as SoundCloud where we are NYAC Podcast. Don't forget to reach out to us on social media, Facebook, we are Not Your African Cliche, Twitter, at NYAC Podcast and Instagram NYAC underscore podcast. You can also email us at NotYourAfricanCliché at gmail.com. Now enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: (laughs)
2: welcome to another episode of not your african cliche we are so happy to be here and funny thing i just realized that our first anniversary is coming up soon Hello. so thank you guys for sticking with us thus far so this is this is a timely episode because we on this episode we're going to be talking about activism across the african continent and we're excited to dig in and 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 ch- have a chat. So um, I'll let my wonderful co-hosts introduce themselves.
3: Hey, everyone. This is Amayo. Hi, everyone. This is Ifenua speaking.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Onyeka, a.k.a. Yekao.
2: So we also have very, very, very special guests with us in our non-existent studio. <laughs> um, we... Ha- I'm, going to, I'm just going to let them introduce themselves.
4: Hi, everyone. This is Ndogo Zomuloi from West, South Africa.
5: Hi, uh, my name is Zoe Samuzi and I live in Oakland, California.
2: Yay. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us. So we're going to kick off the episode and say um, and ask... So, his, what what's the history of activism in your country? Um, when was your activism first awakened?
4: Let's see. I'll, I'll start. Uh, so, with South Africa, I, I'm born at like the heart of protest action. Really, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like if we like we all remember uh, activism during apartheid, and it came in different stages over a long. Long period of t- uh, a long period of time, and the different phases looked differently. They had different ideological stances, and then the people that were leading it were also very different. Um, but the one thing that actually changed um, the status quo for us was in the 80s. When uh, in the liberation struggle, when people started, um, it, it started uh, to take up arms with Mkomtoesezwe, and um, and ablacaders who uh, like, and they started fighting, and violence broke out throughout throughout the country. And in as and as sad as that was, it actually birthed out uh, our democracy. Uh, whether it was. It was for better or for worse, but it actually birthed out of a democracy. And after a couple of years into democracy, people started uh, being unsatisfied with a lot of things. So I, uh, like as I said, I was born in a in a country which is basically the heart of protest. Um, so my whole life, I've always seen protests, whether it was service delivery protests or, or whatever. But I've I, I I grew up around protests. protest culture is arguably even part of our identity. So yeah, in my awakening, second part of your question, I was. It's funny because I come from a family that that fought during apartheid most of the men in my family died and um, even my, my father died um, when we were transitioning from apartheid to democracy. So we were left with just one man in the entire family because they all died. And because of the pain that it carries and because of how apartheid destroyed our family, because it left orphans in, our, in, in my family. So because of that, because of that pain, we always rejected any kind of activism. We didn't want to be involved. We didn't want uh, to hear anything about politics. We were we just like we're gonna live our lives. We don't want anything to do with, uh, with this. but it was however, always in our face. It's just that we didn't want like it because of the pain. but like after after a couple of years, so we went to to what was previously called the white schools. And after a couple of years of assimilating, you realize that actually you're black. And no matter how much you try to assimilate, no matter how much you try to belong, it, like whiteness always a you, there's always a time where they will remind you how black you are, whether it's because they tell you your Afro is not allowed in school or whatever. Oh. So it's those things that actually strike anger within you. And then you end up fighting. I'll say the first awakening I had was in high school when, when, when we were fighting for something as simple as, "Hey, <laughs> suspended for for having an afro, and that is when my anger started started building up up until I got to university, and then that's where it really began, it was like roads must fall and fees must fall and end outsourcing
2: wow.
0: wow thank you for sharing yeah, um, you over here and I Thing think the very first um, protest, I guess, I was um, taught about or I was introduced to was um, in a classroom. So I remember it was one of my classes and they were talking about the 1929 women's riots in Aba. Um And so for those who don't know, um, about 1914 was um, when Nigeria was amalgamated. And so they joined the north and the south together. And um, in the southern areas, well, mostly the Ebor areas, they had what they called the warrant chiefs, who um, the, what's his name, Lord Lugard, I guess is his name, uh, got these chiefs to be in charge of the people. So it was like indirect rule. So they were ruling on his behalf, but he had the power and they started to abuse that power. And then they um, started to tax the Maquette women more. And so these women rallied themselves together um, and, you know, went out protesting and rioting, if you will. And that is what's known as the 1929 um, Women's Riots in Aba. And I think growing up, I just thought it was amazing that they did that, but then I didn't necessarily connect um, in a certain way to it. And so I think that my... Um, awakening or wokeness, if you will, kind of happened in stages. So like there was the awareness that these things were happening. And then over time, especially in college, it was like, wait, this affects me in some way. And so I guess the moment that I became more aware was when it started to affect me.
3: Um, this is the female here, and as I, you know, I don't know, for most people, I wasn't raised in a family, um, of activists, um, so growing up, I didn't have that influence in my life, but I do remember as a child, and because I was a child, those memories are definitely, um, filled with holes, so I don't remember everything exactly, but I remember the time when... Um late general Abacha was in power mm. um and there were definitely scores of protests going on across the country um in opposition to his regime and he was supposed to hand over to like a democracy democracy um but <laughs> obviously when people in power lets the power get to their head, then they don't want to let go um But I remember during that time, a couple of protests happening, but I don't believe my family was involved in any way. Um, So, History of Axism, I remember that happening. Um, And then also Niger Delta, of course. Um, Protests happening around that, and just like emotional, uh, sorry, not emotional, environmental pollution happening because of Mm -hmm. oil companies going into that area, and exploiting those villages and not providing proper resources to take care of that community in terms of like health, economic or uh, resources at all and um, and one po- um, popular protester from that region, Ken Saro-Wiwa, which we've talked about a couple episodes ago. I, I believe one I brought him up um, and then what are the protests history of activism? Also recently occupy Nigeria. Um, that took place, I believe, in 2012, um, and also right now with just the inflation going on in Nigeria and the horrible foreign exchange rate, I don't, I'm not sure if like any protests have been initiated as a result of that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens soon, just because um, a new president has taken took office this year, um, and things are obviously not going well, so I wouldn't be surprised if protests happen as a result of that.
5: Um, So me, personally, I grew up in the United States, and I think that my first experience with any kind of activism was the Bush administration. And I was with this little organization called Future Voters Against Bush. But uh, I was 11, so there wasn't too much um, of my involvement in that. But I think that my parents really kind of discouraged me from doing any kind of activism um, because I think my dad was involved with some of the anti-regime protests when he was young and in school. and they were protesting against Rhodesia. Um, So I think I started getting involved here as I got more involved, as I started living in Oakland and I started getting involved with anti-gentrification politics. And I was in the academy and I was realizing that I cannot simply take solace in the fact that I have access just to resources and other people don't, and it's my responsibility to redistribute things. And and I'm looking at all of what's going on in Zimbabwe right now, trying trying to figure out the best way that I can be of support from outside of the country. Um, so it's been kind of like a, an increasing intensity. And then obviously now that Donald Trump is president. <laughs> Oh, oh not yet. Um, all of the organizing that we've been having to do is going to be have to be intensified like we've got to get really together because i think he's going to try to cut medicaid in some parts he's going to try to make abortions even more difficult to have access to people are going to get deported in mass and we're kind of scrambling to get ready for a lot of things so it's really nerve-wracking
2: Um. This is Ife. So similar to Ife, Inwa, I grew up in Nigeria, and I didn't really see much activism because when I was growing up, the government in power, Abacha, was very repressive, and there was a palpable fear of, you know, pushback and blowback and even death. So. I didn't know anybody in my immediate circles who were activists or who were fighting for change. A lot of people were just, you know, speaking hush-hush and people were like, oh, they'll just disappear you if you talk any rubbish or they like stories of people getting like poison in the mail, like really scary shit. Um, But like if you want to so i know Ken Saro-Wiwa who spoke vocally against Abacha's regime um and he was executed basically so he was falsely accused of i don't know treason or something i don't even know what he was accused of again um and he was executed so there were a lot of those kind of public executions that deterred people definitely struck fear in people's hearts um other protests in nigeria occupied nigeria and that was basically a, a protest against the false subsidy removal so nigeria is an all-producing country but one of <laughs> a terrible thing is that we don't have refineries so we export oil we import the finished products And there's a subsidy on that. There's a government subsidy on that that makes the finished products cheaper than they would otherwise be. So our government at that time threatened to... They actually did remove it. I don't think there's a subsidy anymore. But there there were protests, there were marches. And I think that was the first time ever I witnessed Nigerians being so engaged and... They came out in mass, and it was it was really powerful to see. The country kind of stood still for maybe almost a week. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was good to see, and it was heartening to see. Um, in terms of when my activism was awakened, really when, because I I studied in the states, so it was when Trayvon Martin died and when the whole um you know the series of public um police brutality cases or when the police brutality ca- cases became more <laughs> this is terrible but more mainstream oh. or more obvious or more easily witnessed so yeah Amaya, do you have any thing well, to add about that?
1: Well, I don't have a specific time, when I think I my, acti- my activism was, like, uh, right woken up. But I do want to talk about the whole Bring Back Our Girls movement huh. in Nigeria, Um, I think that, like, the whole campaign and the movement, both online, like, through social media and also, like, on ground, like, people actually going to the streets and demanding more from the government, um, I think that was, like, that whole period has been, or this, I guess it's still kind of going on because it's not just about the girls, even though, of course, they play the key part, but it's more about the government taking more responsibility. And, you know, I feel like there were points where people completely forgot about the girls, and people had moved on. But then, following Obi Ezek Ezekwesili, I forgot to I don't know how to pronounce. Ezekwesili. Yeah. Ezekwesili. Sorry. Yes, following her on Twitter and just seeing her persistence and how she has been able to rally the youth and just keep people engaged and keep people updated about like what's going on, I feel like she has been the main player in you know keep, keeping people aware and motivated to accomplish the goal so I think, I mean, social media played a key part. Obviously, concerned and affected parents and mothers of the daughters also played the key part. And, you know, like, we're beginning to see um, results. Um, Yeah, just wanted to talk about that.
0: Actually, can I add one more thing? This is Yeka over here. And the more I think about this... I think it almost seems like Nigeria was not necessarily a very protesting kind of place, but I think of strikes and strikes are actually a form of protest. Um, And so if I think about Nigeria's history with strikes, I think there have been so many strikes educationally, even when we were in high school, if anyone, like there was definitely a strike that had us, you know, out of class for God knows how long. So I think that also is a huge um, thing, but the problem is after you strike for so long, it it almost becomes mainstream and normal, Mm
5: -hmm. that, like, we
0: don't necessarily see it as um, a protest. Yeah. Okay, I'm
1: done. (laughs) I see what you mean, though. There's so many strikes that happen that, like, at first it's like, okay, this is happening, and everyone's like, oh okay. Then after a while, it's like,
3: Okay. Again. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So going off that actually so we've read or heard about the Oromo post tests in Ethiopia, the this flag movement in Zimbabwe, the Fees Must Fall movement in South Africa. And my question to you is how do you build movement and how do you do so effectively so for example I'll I'll just give some background about the Oromo protests because we don't have anybody on the conversation who is um, closely tied to that but the Oromo protests are by the Oromia people in Ethiopia and they're protesting land grabs so what's happening is that the Ethiopian government is expanding Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. And they're basically claiming people's land to build roads and infrastructure and without actually engaging with the community. And they're taking people's livelihoods in the process. So that's that's kind of the background for the or- Oromo protests. Um, um, Thanks for those cliff, cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, how do you, how how do we build sustainable, effective activism? How do we mobilize
5: people? You know, I've been kind of thinking about this um looking at all of these countries in Africa and then trying to kind of figure out what makes sense here in the United States. Um you know, we we have white supremacy that we're all fighting against. But how do we how do we kind of get everybody on the same page? How do we get everyone to have the same level of investment to resist this the the system? Like in Zim, I see it's not that controversial or difficult to rally around Mugabe, and I feel like the fear would be you know, potential, um, what's the word, uh, retribution from the state. Whereas in the United States, I think a lot of people, it's hard to build a movement with black folks because so many of us still have investment in the way that the system works. We still derive benefit from it. Whereas if you have a whole you know, the Oromo people are getting together because this whole I I don't know, it's, it's hard to do. (laughs) And it's scary to do. And I think you have to get pushed to a point where you have no other options but Mm -hmm. to engage in this particular struggle. Uh And I think a lot of people in Zimbabwe who don't have food, who, who cannot get money out of the bank, who cannot get jobs, are engaging in these protests because they literally have nothing left, I guess, but maybe their lives to lose. And we're not yet in that point here. And we're not yet in this point in so many other places. So it almost, it it almost feels like the way to to get this movement is to get to the point where it's so desperate and so urgent that there's no other point or there's no other thing Mm -hmm. for you to do, which is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, people
1: are afraid to openly support causes. And I think it has to affect them personally for them to, you know, make moves and do something. For example, like a lot is going on in the north of Nigeria, like with Boko Haram, people are being killed. But then if you spend time in Lagos, it's almost like you're in a different country because, Uh. I mean, people have become numb to it because it's like like bombings are happening so regularly and people aren't being personally affected um like not many people in the south of nigeria have family or friends in the north of nigeria so for them it's like okay life is going on as usual like Uh you know so it's until somebody has been personally affected which i guess is normal like most people need to have a personal experience before they do something but it's it's really hurting our progress uh-huh. because it's like like I said it's almost like a different country like so many things are happening and people are just like yeah whatever like okay it's another one okay let's pray for them oh it's another <laughs> one okay that's yeah. you know sad but life must go on um yeah it's it's really scary when you think about it it's like like it's really scary um
0: you O over here and I think for you to be able to create sustainable or a sustainable um, activist approach, you need to start from a place of empathy, right? So like Amaya was saying, like if I'm not personally connected to an issue, then does it really concern me, right? So if we start from a place of empathy where people are able to connect to a story or connect to a plight, whether or not they're involved, but just because they're empathetic to the human situation, That's one way to go about it. Um, I think social media is fantastic. But the problem that we have with a lot of millennials is that we're more slacktivists than activists. And so in the terms of we can sit behind Facebook and, you know, tell everybody about what's going on, which is fantastic. It's very important because otherwise how people know what's going on. But we stop at that level and we don't really go further than that. And so the constant question is, OK, so I'm not in Zimbabwe or I'm not in South Africa. How then am I able to um do something to help that plight? Um, so you have you have those those issues. But I think more than anything, though, um, in a, in order to create um, sustainable activism, you have to kind of go beyond yourself or see it beyond yourself i remember the first time i told my dad i was a i was an activist and he said you said eh D- that what and it's like wait calm down he said please 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 this is not why i sent you to school this is not why and there there's like valid fear right because based on his experiences you know he could get a call and it would be like well your daughter's in jail and he's not about that life right but if if he was to say you know what like. We, we're all human beings and we share this planet and what affects you should affect me. And I think that's just how I've just started to live my life is if it's affecting the next person, just on the basis of our shared humanity, it should affect me too. So as millennials, we're more individualistic, I think, even, um, that that whole concept might elude us a little bit.
1: But no, like one more thing, like based on like some things that I saw in the articles that you shared. By the way, thanks so much for those articles. They were, you know, so on point. Um, but the armed forces and, you know, the police, military, army, whatever, they kind of have to be on board with you. Not on board. Not kind of, they have to be because when they are not, that's wh- that's where more fear um comes from. Because it's like, okay, you're fighting against the government, but then are you going to get this immediate opposition from, you know, the police or the army or the military or whatever? It's like, you're going to take the streets, but then are you going to be shot down by people who are meant to protect you and, you know, put your safety like, ahead of the... Like, it's it's the immediate, immediate fear that you're faced with. It's like, okay, let me... Going to support this cause, but then am I also going to, am i am I also fine with risking my life for these people this cause or whatever so yeah
2: so can you do you have any because um, you are on the front line front lines of the fees must fall movement or you're you're involved with the movement anyway do you have any any insight into what makes an activism or what makes activism more sustainable or what makes um,
1: yeah
4: okay for us I, okay I think mobilization really plays an important role and when like when you don't do it properly number one it's either you have a failed movement or or um, it is not sustained for a long period uh, for a long period of time. We struggled with the same problems from last year when the movement began, and like when we when we did the game this year, we still struggled with the same problems. there was little there was little reflection, and maybe that is what killed us. but then what I learned what i what I learned, and I thought like it's very useful
2: oh, so, oh sorry to interrupt. can you give us um, a background about the movement from your perspective? So we've read about it. Um, but you know, somebody who's in the thick of it will have a different perspective.
4: Okay, can okay, can I? Because I'm already like I I forget a lot. Can I just <laughs> continue with yes. with the question of mobilization and yes, I'll, yes. I'll give you a background <laughs> afterwards. Thank you. So <laughs> so yes. Uh, so number one, the I think it is very useful to clarify the cause, clarify the message. For us a lot was lost in not clarifying what we are fighting for. Mm. Focusing on the repression that we were facing and then a lot of people on the ground still didn't understand what you are fighting for, just go back to school. So like at at the very beginning it is important to clarify to and solidify the message. So that everyone knows about the movement and says the same things, basically about the movement. Granted, yes, they'll have their own opinions, but then the message must be clear. As soon as you clarify the message, your job becomes easier because, because like number two, you will you will you will easily identify your allies, and you will easily identify who the fight is directed to, and. Once you know that, you know exactly what to do with those relationships. You know how to target who and all of that. So so that falls into the strategy and the, and the tactics that we employ. But then another thing that um, that we are doing now um, that we should have from the beginning is that we are connecting with community struggles where we are saying that it is difficult to convince a middle class Black South African to join the struggle for free education, even though they are paying off study loans and all of that, but because they are sitting from a, a position of certain privilege and then they are saying that we did this, what are you crying about? You can also it. it's easier to 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 talk to people that actually need this thing. If you are not working because you couldn't get an education or, or, or you were excluded from university because you don't have money or, 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 or all of that, then I don't have to convince you much. I don't have to work so hard to convince you. I just come to you and say, listen, economic freedom is tied to free education. Let's how can we work together? And then if you're gonna involve the community, then you have to be in touch also with the with the various community struggles that that, that, uh, the, uh, that they are going through and see how you can uh, link those struggles and how you guys can actually support one another and another thing that i also learned which is painful is that just because someone is an ally from the beginning it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they will be an, an ally till the end oh, allies wow. come in different stages and we have to be comfortable with the fact that with the fact that we will have different people at different times it's not a loss it's fine it can benefit our, our movement because a movement Takes different shapes, and we have to be mm-hmm. comfortable with, with that. We have to be comfortable with the fact that, in as much as, like, I'll make an example: peaceful for last year, like it was a very peaceful protest. And over time, because of certain, uh, because of certain things that I'll get into, uh, like, um, like when I'm done with this, it it started taking a militant approach, and because of the militancy, it was met with violence. And then it ended up being being this violent thing that everyone uh, that everyone saw. And at different times, there were different allies. And it looked at, and we have to be comfortable with that. We have to um, also knowing how to how to play media as a game because media reports to the people, and they are in charge of your messaging. How do you then how do you then play media, especially when they report against you? Especially like when you look in our in our country where uh, the government is basically in charge of the media. How do you navigate those spaces? How do, you, how do we use media to your advantage, even when it's not necessarily um, uh, to your advantage? And also one thing that helped us a lot to legitimize our struggle is um, academic contribution, where we got uh, academics involved and we got students on the ground to start writing and, 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 and to start critiquing the status quo. And what we then did because like for like because of the, like this falls into the decolonization uh, aspect of our of our struggle where we are saying that for many years education has been colonized and it's not just the fact that education has been colonized, but information has 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 been for the select few. A few people determine what is good information and what should be taught and uh, and what should go out to the public. So yeah. when we as black people, we as students, we as academics start to actually sit down and contribute academically, then we, we start changing that. That is part of decolonization. We start speaking against narratives that would actually say that uh, I, I, about it was economically viable, then you start speaking against it. And and, and, and I think that work legitimizes the struggle and also helps in mobilizing in the long run, where even if there's nothing going on in, uh, on the ground, for as long as there are those articles there or those books there, students would study about it and they get conscientized automatically as they read those things and they begin to understand the reasons behind the struggle. So even when we are not doing anything, that work remains, and I think that is something that is uh, that is really important. And yeah, in terms of like uh, the fees must fall background, fees must fall. Fees must fall started last year as 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 a movement. It didn't even start as a movement. When we started, we thought we thought that we were going to have a lunchtime uh, a lunchtime uh, uh, a march where we are going to march from from this campus to um, uh, to the next campus. To, to say that we don't want free education. Uh, sorry, we don't want, uh, we don't want a, a fee increment. What, what happened then was that there was a small group of students, about 15 students, who said, actually, you know what? This thing of a much, it's really not going to work. So what we're going to do, we're going to shut down the university. So they shut down all of the gates of the university, and that actually ended up in a big strike. That we didn't even anticipate and we didn't even plan for. And we found ourselves in a situation where we had thousands of students who who were saying that we don't we don't want any fee increments for this year and all of that. And as we were fighting for that, and we began to see the exclusion that comes with 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 with, with paying uh, a, a fee in order to get access to education. And then we started also investigating the historical background of South Africa, and you said that the best way to view education is to view it as a public good. And if it's a public good, then the government has to invest in it. And the government has to prioritize education. It's not that Africa cannot afford free education, but can Africa afford not to have free education? Seeing where we come Mm -hmm. from and seeing uh, seeing where we are now, can we afford not to have free education? So even though the narrative started at 0%, to say that we cannot afford an, an increased fees, a lot of students came and said, We sleep in libraries already it's not that we can't afford an increase an increment we can't afford fees to begin with so mm-hmm. how, so that's when we started changing the narrative to say we want free education and we want free education now. We want the government to prioritize free education uh, to prioritize education, and we even uh, developed a model and we are like we want way uh, were we were we were because we uh, a lot of people were asking us. Where will the money come from? So we we dev, we the model, not necessarily for the government, but but for us, for for us to use as a mobilizing tool to say that okay, we we got a team of um, economists actually sat down and develop a, a model. One uh, percent of it let's increase because right now government is investing zero point four eight percent in education, and we're like that is low on international standards, and according to to research. They say that, uh, according to research, uh, only two percent is needed, an increment of two percent investment is needed from the government for us to afford free education. so we started saying, okay, actually invest one percent and we'll start taking we'll take the other one percent that is needed from capital, and we that is the, that is those are the tools that we use for 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 mobilizing to say that even capital must be accountable because uh, capital is the biggest beneficiary of uh, of uh, of educated people, so yeah, that is what has been going on. That is what we have been fighting for. Unfortunately, um, we 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 are not successful yet. We are like yeah, the repression has been so real, but yeah, we're still gonna fight.
2: Thank you so much for sharing. that was so informative thank you thank you so much um so this is ifes speaking and for me i think an important thing so you in tokozo you mentioned connecting with other people's struggles so for example the local community struggles and that brings me back to thinking about intersectionality and thinking about how our our struggles are connected and the more connected we are and the more i you know the more we acknowledge those connections um we will be stronger for it and and we can just amplify each other's voices and and the movement will just grow so again Echoing what you said about finding your allies and people who are potential allies and how you could build together. Another thing that comes to mind is recognizing that there are different roles and people play different roles. So I was having this argument on Twitter, as one does, with somebody that was, oh, all of you just marching in the streets, you need to build the future, um, the... You know, like you need to be making money or you need to be. What was he saying again? If, if anyone. Let's not mention names. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you're
4: not? But don't essentially, want to do that Come on.
3: essentially, like you said, building the future and like getting into boardrooms and doing tangible, powerful things to affect yeah. change. Yeah. So this person is a good
2: friend of mine and he's, you know, he has some views that I'm always like, bruh, bruh, bruh. (laughs) You know, he's, you know, libertarian. He's, he's, is one of these, like, new African Silicon Valley people. Anyway. So I'm like, how do you, like, you won't know about, you know, causes to fight for if people aren't on the front lines, like, demanding change if people aren't the front are on the front lines documenting things if social critics and sociologists and like people aren't pointing out things that are broken that need need to be fixed so a part of all of that you know part of that protest uh, process is protests and activism so you can like, activism takes different forms. You can be an activist in your boardroom and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, you as a Silicon Valley, African Silicon Valley person, you can be an activist in that avenue. You don't have to deride the people that are on the front lines. Like, that weird elitism of, oh, you're not, you're not doing anything tangible because people are just blocking the streets. And I'm like... No, that is a reductive, simplistic way of looking at things. So I think um what was do you know I've forgotten my question. Oh, oh, Building effective, yeah. you know,
3: activism activism and like community and mobilizing and Yes. Thank you. You're welcome.
2: So I think recognizing that there are different roles to play and not and not shitting on any of the roles that appear to be lesser or appear to be... Like, even... Like, I don't like the term slacktivism, actually, because a lot of the things that I personally am aware mm-hmm. of is through social media and through people that I listen to and people's voice who are amplified. And that happens through engagement on social media. So, yes, social media shouldn't be the end-all and be-all of your, of your activism. But there are some people that, like, really, that's all... Like, amplifying other people's voices is all they are able to do.
3: Yeah, and this is the thing, where, and I believe uh, this was <laughs> mentioned earlier about government's control of media. And this was seen during the Arab Spring, where the government was heavily controlling what was being put on TV and in newspapers, and the people eventually found a way around that, and were publicizing what was happening on the ground through social media. So that's just one tangent. Um, the other thing is, I believe to mobilize or effectively mobilize people, it's important for everyone to have a unified goal. <laughs> um and it's obviously not easy to do or possible to do one hundred percent, but it's highly possible you see a group of people who one people think, Oh, this is what they're protesting for and they just want I don't defuse to be reduced. And then you have another group of people who are like, No, we want free education and when there's division within a group of people who are protesting, it's hard for that Protest and activism to be effective. So that was just one thing I was going to add.
4: Yeah, I just want to add something. I, I yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Like because we saw the effects of it last year when um, the moment we get we got the zero percent fee increment announcement,
5: mm-hmm.
4: almost everyone went to class, and then we mm-hmm. were left with with eighty people on the ground. What what that did. It was 80 people who really believed in the cause. It wasn't just people who were there for numbers or because it was fun or because there was media or whatever. It was 80 people who believed in the cause and we started separating ourselves. We started So when we first started in the first round where there was like a lot of people, it was just us protesting and and, and just walking in streets and singing and there was power because we had numbers. But Mm -hmm. when we didn't have numbers, we had to find creative ways of protesting and we separated ourselves in task teams and we started and 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 we we started finding ways to to maybe protest without using our physical bodies Mm -hmm. and even when like there was interdicts and things like that we found ways around that so even though there were few people but there were few people who were who were so effective that in uh, those 80 people actually managed to end outsourcing and it took about like for ten years uh workers at Wits University were fighting for uh, were fighting to be insourced by the university. But like it took eighty determined people to actually do that in one week. Yeah. And so in as much as yes, I agree with you, but then not all is lost when there's division. I was speaking to to my grandfather about about the divisions that exist within us even now where we, even though we, well, we might agree maybe in free education, but then we differ in terms of tactics where someone oh. would be like, no, I don't think we should shut down. In another yeah. Like, we differ in terms of tactics. And we were talking about that. And I was worried about the divisions that, that, that exist within us. And then my grandfather is like, "No, unity is overrated which shocked me. I was like, "But how could you say that?" And then he said, "Look at the liberation struggle, and he was telling me how when they fought for apartheid, even amongst black people, there were different political parties because they didn't because even though they 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 agreed that they wanted a better life and they wanted democracy, they didn't agree with the tactics they 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 formed different political parties and they were not united within those parties but Everyone was allowed, within those divisions, everyone was allowed to fight in the way that they wanted to fight and in the way that they felt comfortable fighting. And that actually led up to us getting uh, getting democracy at the end of the day.
2: I have a question, follow-up question. So what kind of strategies did you guys employ, for example, that made you effective as just 80 people? Are you comfortable sharing
4: yeah it's so um okay when we when we first started we did what we already knew and what we knew was shut down so we started shutting down gates, and then uh it wasn't it wasn't as effective because now there were few people so shutting down didn't didn't work and then the university also got an interdict against us so we couldn't shut down anymore so what we started doing we started uh, doing art installations Around the university where uh, people would come or where people would come even in, 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 in pig blood and, yeah. and, 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 or even like with robes and tie against uh, and tie, them, and tie themselves in trees and be like uh, and write uh, right there that they, uh, that um, they are being hanged by by debt so we started there was art installations and then there was also us now saying, okay. Since there's 80 students, we can't fight free education. What are we gonna do? Then we started going to workers. Workers, you need to be ensourced. You are our parents. We love you, and you are like. uh, So that's when, and you can't have a a student struggle without a worker struggle. uh, So we were like, these things are the same thing. So start. Uh, So 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 come and be with us on the front lines, and then we did that and. The worker population is like thousands of workers on, uh, on like, campus. So it was easy for us to regain the numbers just using the workers instead of, uh, instead of it being us. But like, yeah, it was different things like that. Where like o- also in different universities. In UCT, for example, when they didn't have uh, the, the bodies to shut down, what they did, they took, as disgusting as it is, they took poo and put it all over the classrooms. Oh and it's disgusting, but it it's effective. <laughs> it worked. Mm-hmm. It worked. Oh, wow. No one could attend class, and like yeah, <laughs> there's other universities that would shut down the system where like uh, where the get IT guys actually shut down the system and all of that. So now we started looking at different ways because our goal was we always wanted. We never even now, even when it doesn't work, we still don't want to let go of the tactic of shutting down. Mm. So even our, like, our, like when we start planning uh, differently, we still plan around disrupting and we still plan around shutting down. And we disrupt it in, in, in different beautiful ways. Even like taking dirt and putting it, all, and putting it like, all over campus. People even took a cement and put it in, 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 in toilets and drains and then opened the taps. <laughs> it drowned, like the whole place was flooded. And yeah. So like things like that. And like, yeah, the whole place was flooded. Lifts were broken that day. So a lot like, yeah, we did things like that. But also what what helped us at that time is that we also um, we also started involving the security in our struggle, the, the campus security. And we were like, OK, your issues are one, two, three and four. And we, we think that we should fight for you as well. And because they they were involved in our side, they made sure that they didn't do anything to us, but they supported us as we were struggling. And when there was trouble, when police would come, they'd actually tip us that actually police are coming, Uh, uh run away, and we would do that. So they, they played an important role.
2: That's, that's really interesting, because one of the criticisms of one of the articles I shared, somebody was criticizing the This Flag movement, and they were talking about how it's not like one of the reasons why it's not effective is because they don't have the support of the military or the law enforcement and in your case like the campus security is your own form of law enforcement so they did uh, play a role and 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 uh, I'm beginning to see the importance of having allies in that in that space another thing another criticism that was in that article was about future plans and how there haven't been concrete zoe you can i don't know if you know more about you definitely probably know more about this than than we do um but how there were no concrete or there hasn't been any publicized or known concrete plans to move forward after okay so if they succeed in getting Mugabe off who are the opposition parties what 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 are they fighting for what is the what are the next steps to improve the economy? You know, like you, the fees must fall. What I'm learning about it now and how you guys built an economic model and like how you have, you know, basically a manual, like this is where, you want to know where to get the money from. This is where to get the money from. It's so admirable. And 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 it's something that all activists should learn learn more about. Zoe, do you have anything to say about the, this flag movement and the criticisms about it?
5: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I just want to say, first of all, that regime change is an incredibly difficult thing to kind of try to plan for unless you are going to go via armed struggle. Unless your plan is that, listen, we're going to get arms together and we're going to launch a full-on assault against the state. Trying to change a regime through quote-unquote democratic means when the person who is at the head of the state has quite deliberately attempted to centralize both military and executive power, um, you know, that's an incredibly difficult thing to try to do peacefully, particularly when you have a bunch of different opposition groups who don't necessarily agree on a lot of things. So even with an MDC who is the kind of quote-unquote official opposition to ZANU, there are two MDCs, you know? Um, And then you have, you know, Joyce Mujuru, the former uh, vice president who's doing her own party, and there's a number of other people. And the thing that is, yeah, getting quite frustrating is this inability to, to translate these popular demands, these, the lack of jobs, the lack of food, the financial crisis, and all of these things into meaningful electoral politics. But then it's also difficult because what happens every time you go to the polls against ZANU? there there's a rigged election almost every single time. And so they're kind of at this impasse, right? Where they want to actualize a democracy through these peaceful, you know, kind of populist country and identity and whatever rallying means. But everybody has different interests. Everybody wants the president gone for different reasons. And all of the different opposition parties simply want him gone so they can consolidate their own power. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on and I'm trying to figure out what the next steps are because, you know, all we have are students upset that there are no jobs and you have people upset about the potential introduction of bond notes and you have people upset about the state of the country, but then you also have the international community holding forward progress hostage because the sanctions are still there. And they're unwilling mm-hmm. to try to kind of negotiate lifting the sanctions. And if you lift the sanctions and you allow credit lines and you are kind of getting people to reinvest, but people don't want to invest because of the president, like, you, it becomes this kind of difficult cycle. You know, and... Can you talk more about
2: the sanctions? What kind of, like, who imposed sanctions? Is it because, like, Mugabe, Mugabe is basically a dictator, so the UN imposed
5: sanctions um I think the sanctions come from the European Union um yeah they come I, I'm trying to think and I think it has to do with human rights okay. um it has to do with uh, certain individuals I think it's like targeted sanctions so it's like 88 different people in the government and like something like 60 or 70 different um entities uh like state entities and parasital entities um but yeah it seems as though the united states and the european union have absolutely no interest or desire to discuss lifting the sanctions Hmm. but i feel like maybe they would lift the sanctions after regime change and again you see where we are still um yeah so it's kind of a really frustrating cycle of You know, people trying to rise up and then you have this repression because more than anything, I think that the president and the party have tried to ensure that above everybody else, the military and security apparatuses are loyal to the party. That's why it was such a big deal when the war veterans were like, we no longer support President Mugabe because the war veterans were previously used as kind of the muscle to Mm. to kind of bully people into supporting particular things.
4: Can I ask you something? Because uh, you mentioned how elections are always reaped and all of that. I uh, Remember, there was—I don't remember what year it was—but a couple of years ago, Mugabe um, actually lost elections to, mm-hmm. to Morgan uh, Chimera, and um, yeah. well, and uh, he refused to step down. Uh, to was called to mediate, and they, they ended up coming up with a solution, with A. Morgan King, like, be the prime minister and Gabi be the president. Like, do you think, for me, okay, that's, like, I'm very careful to comment on other, on other countries, but, like, for me, I think the, there's, there's, like, complete undermining of any democratic process. It's not just about wreaking elections. I don't think that they being wreaked because, like, I remember, like, that one in particular, he
5: did not win. But the most recent election, he did win, earnestly.
4: Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that people vote for him out of fear because I've heard my, my, my friends, number one, my Zimbabwean friends are afraid to say anything about uh, about uh, Mugabe because they think that even though they're in South Africa now, uh, he's following, uh, he, like somehow there's intelligence following, following yeah, them around everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They would speak about how if you are from a different party or hold different views, they actually hunt you down, they kill you, they beat you up, they expose you to a lot of torture. So there's a complete undermining of any independent thinking and any democratic process.
5: I mean, there's I think there was a law saying that more than X number of people were not allowed to assemble publicly, or else it would be considered some kind of treasoners not treason but it would be considered some kind of gathering to mm-hmm. discuss state subversive something and then you also have the cybercrime bill that was being discussed in parliament that was basically saying because so many of these things were being organized and discussed on twitter and on facebook that all of these things would be treated by the state as cyber terrorism hmm. so yeah there's not only this you know, literally, you know, electoral fraud where people's dead, you know, grandparents are on voter rolls or there are more people on the voter roll than live in the particular constituency or um, province or, you know, voter region. Um, there's also this violation of constitutional rights for assembly, for speech, for for, for political association. Um, so it's kind of an assault coming on multiple sides. And when you look at the way that the power-sharing agreement was set up, um, between MDC and ZANU, you know, ZANU-PF maintained control of the police and the military. It doesn't matter what anybody else has. You could literally have control over the entirety of the rest of the government. As long as you have control over the military and the police, you have control of everything.
3: Hmm.
5: I'm, I'm aware of time,
2: and I know we're running a little late, so, um, yeah. So... Last couple of questions. What do you want other Africans to know about your activism or political situations in your country? And how can we forge pan-African activist alliances that encourage each other?
5: I think for me personally, if you're talking about pan-Africanism, Something for me that is quite frustrating is the kind of ideological purity and the binaries that come out of Pan-Africanism. That, you know, a leader is good or bad, and they're good if they oppose the West, and they're bad if they are in any way working with the West. And so in New York, there was a pro-Mugabe rally, and they were saying, you know, in the name of Pan-Africanism, we need to support this, this man who's the last revolutionary <laughs> socialist left on the continent. And it's basically, you know, they're invoking the name of Nkuma and Garvey and Malcolm X in the name uh-huh. of Pan-Africanism, and those three men have absolutely nothing to do with one another politically. Okay. And they're treating African politics as this kind of, this this game, right? This, this game of, of ideologues and this game of ideologies, as opposed to recognizing that there are people, so many people with different interests and different locations and different identities and the only way that we can kind of forge a pan African identity, a cohesive pan African identity, is to be nuanced and to recognize that simply because the people are, you know, calling for regime change and simply because there is a history of Western intervention and Western supported regime change, it does not mean that these people are puppets of the West. Not by default. And it's a matter of of of, of being thorough in researching these, these, these popular movements, of researching what Pan Africanism even means, or we, ha- we fall into the trap of turning the continent into this kind of blank map upon which we can project our Pan African desires and our needs. And, you know, in the case of folks in the diaspora, you know, this desire to return to a quote unquote home that we've romanticized, an Africa oh. that is literally stuck at the point at which Africa was gaining independence, or African countries were oh. gaining independence. Like, for so many people, the entire continent is pretty much has stopped at, like, 1970-something or 60-something. Africa is the point at which Kwame Nkrumah was doing his whole thing, and there's nothing that's happened since then. And we have to continue to see these politics and identities as dynamic and shifting and changing as opposed to being static in time. And I think that truly understanding the diversity of histories and identities and and having a proper understanding of what Pan-Africanism actually is, is going to serve us quite well in the future.
2: I should clarify, though, that um, by Pan-Africanism, I essentially mean, like, African alliances. Like, you know there's the ideological Pan-Africanism, you know, there's the theory and, you know, what Kwame Nkrumah and, um, was his... I keep mixing up his, um... His Ghanaian name and his American
5: name. Oh, Kwame Ture.
2: Yes. <laughs> oh, is that him? Oh
5: my gosh. They're
2: the same person. Yeah. I'm um, Carmichael oh. Kwame Ture. So it's like, I keep like...
5: So my personal mean, type, I was I'm, about I'm, to I'm call you know, him. there's Nkuma Ture's, you know, there's like Nkuma tourism, uh Pan-Africanism, then you have nyerere with this weird like one party African socialism. There's so many different like <laughs> strains of it and some of them have materially worked much better than others. Yeah, did not work so well, you know?
3: Hmm. Yeah. Um, this is funny one. I think one thing I will add is in order to forge Pan African activist alliances, like you said, um we have to be aware of what's going on in those countries. Come on, countries. yes, Lord. You know. Like you literally just took yeah. the word. Yes. Please
0: go go ahead. I just had church right now. Go ahead.
3: Sorry, I'm so flattered. <laughs> um, because you can't have these alliances if you're ignorant about what's going on beyond your bubble. So, and I think that's one of the things I became aware of once I stepped out of Lagos is just how much more there is to Lagos and Nigeria yep. um, and I think that's one of the as much as it says something about Nigerian culture that it's so like pervasive and it's everywhere, and it's it's taken over um the downside is it doesn't give room for other. Just education about other cultures and education about other mm-hmm. countries and so I just yeah one step in the right direction is definitely encouraging and I'm speaking to Nigerians because that's my experience but just speaking to Nigerians <laughs> to be more aware of what's going on beyond Lagos and beyond Nigeria and sometimes that's hard because there are hard things going on on the ground like right now economically it's just in shreds. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely being our way. And then, I think if I, you did say this, like, not putting down other people just because somebody's way of doing activism or being an activist or protesting is not your way doesn't mean mm-hmm. you should easily dismiss or disregard what's going on. So, And that ties also to empathy, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, in addition to being aware of what's going on beyond our bubble, being knowledgeable, also not being hesitant to dismiss other people's forms of protests.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think. like as you have seen, I was just very. I, I agree one hundred percent with what you said. Um, <laughs> I think another thing, right, is is the media. We're quick to follow the American elections in our media, right? To the point where, like, Sunday newspaper, you have some Nigerian pastor congratulating Trump in the daily. Uh, Jesus. (laughs) Anyways, I feel like if our media, our news channels, Mm -hmm. you know, are forging those alliances with other media personalities in these other African countries, because they're the ones who we're getting information from. So encouraging the media um, to just to not just be so western focused or um our individual country focused. And I I know it's it's hard and it's difficult and everyone's afraid for their lives, but I think that that would definitely help in making us more aware of what's going on around the world.
3: And piggybacking Yeah, piggybacking off of what you said on a, um this goes to the link if shared about the TED talk um mm. What's her name? Siande? Si, Cian- Yes. And how she talked about um, how young Africans found the voice on Twitter and just the mm-hmm. hashtag hashtag she started, If Africa Were a Bar. And, and that's the great thing about social media, right? As much as we want to diss it and, you know, talk trash about social media, it has so many benefits. And one of them is being easy. So even if on TV where we can't see what's going on in Zimbabwe and the protests that are going on. Zimbabwe is on Twitter and they're tweeting and they're hashtagging and we can easily have access, I mean, of course we're getting one side or somebody's side of the story, but that's the case across all forms of media we're always getting one side of the story but that is definitely one way to escape your bubble and definitely find out what's going on in other countries, so yeah for me, yeah
4: yeah, for me I think what would be useful is for us to actually as a continent to start having conversations with one another. We don't have a space for that. It's 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 easy for me to, to have conversations with a lot of people in, in, in the West uh and know what's going on there, but like we don't necessarily know what is going on in each other's different countries um and, and and maybe there's a lot of factors around that maybe it's xenophobia or whatever it may be because i know my country's really burdened with that sickness but like we do need to start having conversations with one another and we need to start creating a space for that like for me this conversation right here in in, in this podcast has been has been very informative and has changed my views mm. on many things and so, like, so it, the conversation doesn't even look like us being in one room, but yeah. how do we, how do we start having conversations with one another? And then also moving on from the conversation, what practical efforts, what positive efforts are we, are we taking to organize together? I think that is that is something that 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 will be like really, really important. Uh, number the third thing. One thing that I learned in movements is that in as much as we're all there and we're all passionate and we're fighting about, uh, 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 about the same thing, most of the time, especially if you're going to use violence as a tool, you, it's easy for you to turn around and, and use violence against the same comrades that you're fighting, that you're fighting with. And many a time, um, comrades need protection from the state, from uh, from capital and even from other comrades. So, if as a country, I know, I remember once we went to a conference in Zimbabwe where uh, it was an African women's conference and people were talking about how in their countries they're being killed for being gay or like different people who like in in in, in our countries as soon as you speak against the government, they want to kill you and people have to flee from their countries. What support are we giving uh, to each other as Africans in terms of like providing safe houses for one another and also providing a space that is safe for us to just debrief. Sometimes you mm. just need that. Just to nurturing in spaces that are positive where we can sit and they're safe and we can debrief and talk about everything that we've gone through. That is something I think that, I think that is the one key thing that I think can actually build a sustainable movement. The, the sustainability of a movement, devi- like, lies really in, in 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 how much of a nurturing environment is that movement. We need to be that nurturing space for each other as uh, as Africans.
3: So I just want to not necessarily push back, but just food for thought. Um, uh, and I'm also like, I don't want to speak negatively about our countries. <laughs> <laughs> But I just see, like, a lot of times um, when there's unrest or trouble in any African country, say, for example, Ethiopia right now, with the Aroma protests that are going on, there is this cry for international intervention. So we're talking about pan-African alliances. Um, So why are we, and by we I mean all of us on the continent, always looking to... For international help and not calling on one another is that because we even though we as a people seek change and we want certain i don't know i'm trying to find the words but we yeah we're seeking change and there's certain things we're processing we know that other african governments can't step in because they agree with our current government or if that makes any sense Um, So, for example, like with the Aroma protests now, there's the expansion of the capital, Addis Ababa. And I guess on the government side, that's a good thing. But for the people who are living those lives, like that expansion is a threat to their livelihood. And so calling for, I don't know, some other African government to step in, they're like, "Mm, no, we don't want to step in because, I don't know. They, They side with the Ethiopian government. And so... Or is it that we're not calling to each other and we're calling to an international government because they're more stable and they have the resources? And so how does... (laughs) In summary, how do we build a strong, positive, you know, pan-African alliance if we're always stepping out of the continent and bringing in international intervention?
4: But in the same breath, I, I, I don't blame... Africans for for going outside, and I'll I'll say why. Um, it's, uh, like I briefly mentioned, Xenophobia and like yeah, South Africa here yeah, it's horrible. So I've seen the only time in my life where I actually saw South Africans step up. For, for, for an African cause was, was with the, this flag movement. The one thing that this flag movement did really well was actually to build solidarity with South Africans. Um, that was the only time. In every case where Africans would cry and be like, this is going on in our country, help out. South Africans always step, uh, they, they always act like, no, we're not, we're not part of Africa. It's not our issues. They must go to their countries and fix their issues. When people come here and say that we don't have food in our country, this is going on, this is going on, and they seek refuge in our countries, we are quick to say they're stealing our jobs. They need to go back to mm. their countries. So I don't blame. Uh, I don't blame uh, other uh, other countries for for looking for looking for international support simply because I'm just like assessing the the African uh, the South African environment. However, I will say that what if we are to change things as activists, what solidarity with other African countries would look like is us actually doing the work of educating the people on the ground to say that this is going on in different countries they are not here to steal their jobs and actually to remind them of the humanity that those african countries show uh, showed us when we were uh, during apartheid, when we were in exile in their countries so i think that yeah. that is that is the work that we as activists need to do but like like i can't i can't with with the with moral heart uh blame other uh, like uh, the other african countries for seeking international support simply for that reason
5: does anybody have anything else to add? I mean, all of our presidents are the same. So <laughs> what 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 makes us think that, you know, the strongman leader of the country, you know, two countries over is going to come and do something meaningful about the strongman leader of our country because they're going to be too afraid that, you know, if they can affect democracy in someone else's country, they're going to be on the chopping block in their own. So you know, a big obstacle to Pan-Africanism is our shitty leadership.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I just wanted us to, like, not talk around that and mm. address it. Yeah. yeah.
5: That's good.
0: Uh I feel like... So we've, we've said a lot of things, and I think it's important for people who are listening to this podcast to be able to, like, go away with, like, a practical... Mm way of doing something different so like what would you guys recommend what would you say to like the young african millennial who's listening to our podcast on how you know they could be the answer to some of these problems that we've raised Mm
5: -hmm. read more (laughs) (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. honestly you know it's there's so much good stuff out there and there's so many really informative things. It's just read everything and kind of come to an opinion that you made from synthesizing a number of different viewpoints. The second Mm. thing also, if possible, like, I would really advise folks to get Twitter. Yeah, because so much of what I've come to understand is like, in talking with other diasporic Zimbabweans has come through Twitter and South Africans and you know, folks all across the continent, like, Twitter has exposed me to new things to read, you know, really intelligent scholars who are doing the work and then doing kind of public work on on social media. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be my you know things to go do.
3: This is Ifeanyi, and in reading some of the articles that were on the spreadsheet, one thing that did come to mind is there are definitely costs <laughs> to protesting, um, and sometimes people are not. I don't know, willing to pay those costs. Um, And sometimes that results in people doing different, or engaging in different forms of activism. So there are people on the ground literally um, putting their life on the line, (laughs) fighting for a cause. Um, And there are some people who are sharing knowledge, and that's all good and well. Um, But the other thing is In addition to reading more and being a physical body in the trenches and the front lines, there are other things that happen in between. And so even if that means donating to a cause, if there are people you know who are protesting and they need supplies, like even if you don't want to pay that cost of being on the ground, at least there are other ways, like financial ways, where you can support. Um, Sometimes there are organizations that need people to... Write letters that need people to I don't know just some other things, and so finding a way where you can be a part of that movement, and if that means being on the ground, great if that means getting people enlightened and sharing knowledge great if that means donating money, do that as well, but don't be an idle bystander, so no nothing is too small, so yeah.
2: You're so brilliant. Oh my God. Stop
3: it.
4: (laughs) Can I just say that like, I love the fact that you invited women for this conversation. (laughs) Yes.
2: Honestly, like the brilliant people I know are women. And like we went to, if anyone, I went to women's colleges. So it's like kind of our default. (laughs) to (laughs) Always have women.
3: (laughs) That's a great conversation, guys.
2: All right, so we are getting to the end of our episode. We always like to close our episode with, with um, by telling people what we are reading, watching, listening to. So it can be, you know, activism-themed. It can be your general, your latest Netflix binge. It
5: can be whatever. I am reading two things right now. I'm rereading Vico's I Write What I Like. And I am reading Alexander G. Wahelier's Habeas Viscus, which is about um, Afro pessimism and biopolitics and black feminism. Hmm. Uh, in terms of what I'm listening to, I'm still listening to Solange's Seat at the Table. And <laughs> I will never stop listening to that album. Amen. <laughs>
4: Yes. Yeah, I'm reading my books. I'm reading my school books. I've been trying so hard. So like I bought I bought um, um Ngongi, uh, like um, yeah, Ngungi's book. My grandfather's been forcing me to read Ngungi's book, Petals of the Black and and also Decolonizing the Mind. So I have both books right now, but like literally read like one chapter of each so like yeah <laughs> I'm slowly reading that. And then in terms yeah. of music in terms of like yeah, I don't listen to much music honestly, but when I do listen to music I love South African jazz to uh I'm listening to Simpiwe Dana who by the way are so wonderful. We're planning a feasible small concert for the 29th of of, of um of November donated a performance they donated their time and they're so involved in 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 helping us organize the concert so to them
0: oh dico over here um also reading my books for school um (laughs) that's good (laughs) that's good full of knowledge and science i know um but recently my cousin told me about um a tribe called Quest, and they just released a new yes. album called uh, We Got It From Here. Thank you very much or something like that. And I'm like, yo, the people need to see it. They need to hear it. It's so, so good. Um, if you're on Apple Music or Spotify, whichever of those, you can check it out and be empowered.
3: Stay woke. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is Ifeema, and <laughs> I am reading uh, The Fire This Time. It's edited by Jasmine Ward and it's essentially a collection of essays and poems by this generation of writers, intellectuals on race in America. And so I'm literally only fifteen pages in, so I can't even <laughs> speak too much about it. Um, the other thing I wanted to share is I'm listening to Emily Sande's new album, Long Live the Angels, and it's amazing. It's just beautiful. And lastly, I've been going back and forth in my mind whether to share this, (laughs) but I've decided to share it. I have been... I discovered a new guilty pleasure. And it is so white. (laughs) Which is why I was conflicted. Um, But I'm watching this show called Younger. And so it's essentially this 40-year-old woman who lies about her age because for a long time she couldn't find a job and so she's currently passing for a twenty six year old in the publishing industry. So it's just following her life, her of course, her dating life and just how she is embodying all these lies and all the lies she has to tell to just keep up with the lie. Um, but it's so good, but then I'm like, oh, the show is so white. There's literally no black person <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so annoying but it's so good i can't stop <laughs> uh, so that's all i have to share
4: <laughs> there's this beautiful 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 documentary please uh, please watch it it's on youtube uh so just search for revolution in four-part harmony it speaks about the role of music in in, in mobilizing and conscientizing oh. Oh. how long is this documentary <laughs> it's an hour long but it's beautiful it just flies by and like there's a lot of music there so yeah just flies by It's beautiful yeah.
2: thank you for the recommendation
4: i i only discovered it i don't know how i missed it all of these years i only discovered it last week so that's why i get super excited this is
2: ife i am reading james baldwin's go tell it on the Mountain." So, I don't know if anybody else is guilty about this, but I'm certainly guilty, and I'm coming to you guys in confession. Mm -hmm. I love James Baldwin. I love his interviews, but I haven't actually, like, read any of his work. I mean... Like, you know, his entire, like, a book by James Baldwin, so I'm kind of going through his catalogue and and reading, and he's such a vivid descriptor, and it's, it's good so far so i'm reading that i am watching the did i mention masters of sex already i feel like i may Mm -hmm. have yeah (laughs) sorry guys i really like that (laughs) show um i'm also watching the new season of crazy ex-girlfriend if i haven't mentioned that Mm. yet but yeah that's it that's it for me Mm. all right ladies I think we have come to the end of this illuminating, vibrant episode. It is a little long, but listeners, thank you for sticking with us thus far. Um, I I, I know you find that it was worth it. Thank you so much to our special guests, Zoe and Ntokozo. If you guys, do you guys want to say... do you guys want to say where people can find you or if you want to plug anything or
5: last words um, it, I am on Twitter <laughs>
3: um,
5: my handle is zt ZTSamudzi ZTSamudzi
2: yeah Zoe is one of my Twitter faves so this is like actually a fangirl moment <laughs> <laughs> I love it <laughs>
4: Yeah, I'm also on Twitter. Uh my name is N underscore Muloi. So it's N-T-O-K-O-Z-O N-T-O-K-O-Z-O underscore Muloi. M-O-L-O-I. M-O-L-O-I. Sweet.
2: Thank you, ladies. Yay. Thank you guys for joining.